the book of Micah. Take your time to, to turn there. We are in our series in the Minor Prophets, and um, we spent two weeks in the book of Habakkuk, and uh, Josh Montague served us so well through that book. Thank you for leading us into this Old Testament prophet and connecting it to our heart and in turn, ultimately connecting us to our hope in Jesus Christ. And so um, we appreciate that. And so we're going to spend now two weeks in the book of Micah. And if you recall this sort of definition, this role of a prophet that we came to, the role of an Old Testament prophet was to speak God's words to God's people, reminding them of God's character and his covenant. And we're going to see that again through Micah. And remember how Israel, how we got to this group of people. God called out a people to himself by his grace. He made them his own. He revealed himself to to them. He saved them from slavery. He made a covenant with them with stipulations to that covenant that by grace, if they were to walk in his ways, there would be blessing. If they turned from him and rebelled against his ways, there would be judgment. And the minor prophets find ourselves in the time of history or things in their history where it is a mess. Uh, they have broken God's covenant over and over again. And God is sending prophets to call them back to him. And there's judgment being pronounced, but also hope being offered as they return. And Micah is going to feel a bit different than Habakkuk um, in that we didn't observe a lot of judgment being pronounced directly to Israel as a people being declared at them because of their sins. However, we're going to, we're going to see that in, in Micah, and we will see that in some of our other books that we're going to, to cover. And Micah's prophecy, it's, it's vivid, it's intense, there's prose, there's poetry, And it's regarding the sins of Judah and Israel. But among these heavy pronouncements of doom, there comes with it these sweeping, amazing pronouncements of God's redemptive mercy and hope. And I hope those both of those will come to us and speak to our hearts. And so we we need his spirit, we need God to to meet us in order to see and to know these things. So can we go to the Lord in prayer? Join me as we ask the Lord to bless this time. Lord, we thank you for, Lord, for being able to come to your word as a people, your people. And though we are hundreds and hundreds of years removed from the time that these original words were, were given, we know that they are relevant for us today. And they, they will lead us to understand your character. They're going to lead us to understand what it means to live in your covenant, ultimately to know what that means of what Christ has come and done for your people. And so would you come and bless uh, your time in the word? Would you help me to communicate? Would you help us, Lord, as we hear your word to be changed? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to spend two weeks, as I mentioned in Micah, this first uh, message. We're going to really kind of hopefully lay out some groundwork and survey of how Israel ended up where they are. And, uh, and then next week, drill down a little bit more in a specific section. And so who, who was Micah? Well, Micah's name is an abbreviation of, of Micaiah, which means who is like Yahweh or who is like the Lord. 
It's a, it's a rhetorical question, but it's to be answered. Who is like the Lord? No one. No one is like the Lord. No one is, is sovereign. No one is as righteous and just and holy and good and merciful as Yahweh. He is the one that rules. And God's character stands in stark contrast to all the other nations and in what we will see, the condition of his covenant people, kind of where they are. And at, at this point, particularly the leaders have fallen far, far from reflecting God's character. Now, if you look with me in chapter one of our, of our book, it sort of sets the context of the book in verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Micah came from Moresheth, a small village way out in the sort of hill country of Judah, southwest of Jerusalem. He was sort of like a, a country boy, maybe in a poor place of which he, that area was. And we see Micah's ministry was, was over the span of three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And one of his contemporary other prophets was the prophet Isaiah. Is what is clear, though, is he is speaking the word of the Lord concerning, we see Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, setting is important. If you recall, recall what was transpired, what we saw kind of set up through Habakkuk, under sinful leadership, Israel was split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And over time, they were led further and further unto, into unfaithfulness with the Lord, covenant breaking with, with God. As we saw in Habakkuk, judgment was awaiting. First, it would be the Assyrians who would come and overtake Samaria, and then Babylon over Jerusalem and Judah, and they would be brought into exile. So these are warnings that are coming to specifically to Judah. This is who Micah is addressing. But Micah knew who he was. He, he was walking in the confidence of the Lord as a prophet. We see this in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. What he would declare was a message that comes in two forms. First, oracles of doom. So, accusations and warnings because of their rebellion and sin. And we see this in three parts. If you've got your Bible open, that's why somebody's so helpful to have a paper Bible, you kind of see what's going on. Three panels, three sections, and they all begin with this word here. Chapter one, verse two. Chapter three, verse one. And then chapter six, verse one. And these, this pattern that goes through three times in the book, each part with this here, a pronouncement of judgment. However, each of these panels, these sections are followed by powerful promises of hope. In doom and crisis, it would be divine grace. The divine grace of Yahweh, the Lord, and his kingdom would prevail. And we see in Micah, as we unpack it, and anticipates a Messiah, a a savior, this shepherd king who would come and rule God's kingdom with justice and mercy and righteousness. He would, he would lift up the poor and the weak and all those who would return to him in his word, in his covenant. 
And they would come into his kingdom through God's mercy, through God's faithfulness, a remnant of people that God would deliver despite their failings and their rebellion. But before we get to the good news, we get to those good news, we have to look at the bad news, unfortunately. And in the indictments of judgment of Israel and Judah, we're going to look at our first sort of hear statement. Look at verse 2 with me. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now notice, this is a message to Israel and to Judah, but it is one to the entire world. The kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our God, and all are going to bow down to him. All who come under his benevolent care and love and word by faith and trust will live, but those who do not, judgment awaits. And this is what the Lord says. Look at verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. So God in his his holy temple is going to come down upon the earth. He in his glory comes down and mountains were these these pictures, uh, evidences of, of strength and power. And this image of this mountain, this sort of Everest of worldly kingdom and power, the Lord comes down and they melt below him. They, they melt like wax because of his strength, because of, because of his holiness. And judgment is coming because the sins and transgressions of the house of Israel. And he continues, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. This is pretty bleak. This is pretty bleak. Now remember, Samaria is the capital of the city of the north, and Jerusalem is the capital of the city in the southern kingdom. And Micah calls out these influential, powerful cities for from them spawn this sin and this corruption. Micah's saying, from the top down, I'm going to bring my judgment for their idolatry, these carved images in the high places, which are references to the locations that pagan cultures would set up their places of worship, and they would they would be torn down. They would be laid waste. It goes on in chapter 1 to say, to list city, if you look in your Bibles, verses 10 through 16, city after city after city as examples of God just laying through judgment these cities down low. So Israel as a whole had been embracing idolatry of the surrounding nations. They're breaking God's covenant. And remember, Israel was supposed to be God's representative people reflecting his character. And, and they were a nation 
led and governed by God's word, his law. So that means every part of their culture, civil, cultural, religious, political, all would come under God's governance, all under his word and rule. But they were steeped in sin. And if you have your Bibles, you could see in verse 16, it says, because of all of this, they shall go from you into exile. Speaking of the day, many years later, when Babylon would come and take over and bring them into captivity. And so I think it would help us to, as we see generally this sin, Micah doesn't just paint the picture generally. He gets into detail of what their sins looked like, a pronouncement of judgment of what their wrongs were. And so we're going to take a sort of a survey of what was going on and move through the book. And so There'll be scriptures we're going to bounce around to. I encourage you to turn to them if you have your Bibles, but they'll also be, for most of them, up on the screen. So one of the, one of the things we see, the indictments to their sin, was socially and economically. So unlike Habakkuk, who was crying out because the fields were being laid bare and there was nothing, it was a heyday of wealth at this point for Judah. Business was good. Orders of Amazon boxes were just dropping in on people's porches. It was abundance of wealth and affluence for some, not for all. For some, it became a place of oppression. For those who were in power, the rich used their gain to increase on the backs by squashing the poor. Personal greed and abuse, the civil and political leaders were corrupt and they used their power to oppress others. We see this in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. So rather than caring for their own people as image bearers of the covenant community, they were stripping people of their very clothes driving people from their homes, raiding them as if they were enemies of their own people. On the most vulnerable, the women, maybe widows and children, using their power to treat them cruelly and with abuse. Real estate transactions become more important than people. And according to Mosaic law, when Israel entered into the promised land and the land was divided among the people and distributed, the law said that it could not be sold. It was their land permanently. But so instead of protection coming, violation was taking place. Children were, their inheritance was being stolen. This, this was sinful impact that was just not upon this generation. It was impacting generations after them, right in front of them. God says in chapter 6, verse 11, Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? What is this pointing to? It was corruption seen in the simple use of scales and weights to measure out quantities in the marketplace or trade. They would falsify their numbers for their benefit. Theft, lying, and greed in business. Business leaders taking advantage of others. God cares how people personally use their money along with a nation, how they do business. God cares and God judges based on those things as well. 
The social structure was so distorted. Friends and families became foes. Look at Micah 7, verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the mouth, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now, husbands, there are moments we need to put a door on our mouth with our spouses more times than not. But this is something more severe. This was just not watching our words. It was, I'm afraid to use my words lest my wife or my spouse turn on me. Friends not existent, not existent. Man's enemies are the men of his own home. When we can trust no one, even our own neighbor, even our own family, and the community turns in on itself, the moral and social fabric of a society is torn apart. This is a dangerous place. Sort of feels familiar to me. But this is the point. God's people are to be radically different than this. This was the indictment. It was a failure to live in the beauty of what God's relationships should look like. So it's one thing for business corruption in the marketplace and through other leaders. It was a whole other gross sin when God's rulers, particularly the spiritual leaders, were in sin. You see this if you look at chapter 3, sort of the next here statement. And I said, hear, you heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? But you hate the good and love the evil. These leaders, both kings and prophets, were to represent God. Yet rather than taking their cues from God's word and reflecting his characters. They were, take character, they were taking them from other nations and ungodly kings. In chapter 6, there's a small statement in verse 16. Micah basically says, Do you know who your mentors and your life coaches are? Omri and Ahab. And you see what these kings were like in 1 Kings 16. They were leaders who just did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the example that they look to. That's their counselors, and it's disgusting in God's sight. Because these leaders in verse 3 in chapter 2, eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Their sin is a form of cannibalism, devouring others. It's, I mean, this is graphic language. It should it's sort of like turn our stomach in the thought of them eating one another, their flesh. Justice and righteousness should reflect and define God's people because it reflects God himself. Psalm 89, 14, psalmist says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. How about our spiritual leaders, our prophets? Chapter 2, verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. The preacher 
could get paid to utter lies and stupidity, and the people were happy to welcome it, and he was happy to get paid in wine and beer. There is a type of preaching, even in our day, where preachers whose goal is wealth and they utter lies and wind and the people welcome it and contribute to it. Micah 3, verses 5 through 7, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against whom who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. The spiritual leaders are just leading the people astray. If their belly is full, they will say peace. If you rub them the wrong way and don't provide for them, they're going to declare war upon you. These preachers and prophets use their financial greed as the aim of their ministry. It was abuse of power. They were hucksters. They were charlatans. And God would shut them out. So in summary, Israel leaders have fallen, and so as our people, the judges and politicians could be paid off. Sinful practices among the businessmen, its pastors change their messages for money, and the prophets and the preachers are for hire. And this is, this is a scary verse right here. Look at verse 11 in chapter 3. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They lean on the Lord. They continue to look for the Lord for support. Isn't God good? Isn't he on our side? Everything is good. Disaster is not going to come. Money is good. We're whining and dining all along, oblivious to the judgment around the corner. Oblivious to God's condemnation of what they were doing. I don't know what is, is sort of ignorance or blindness or denial, probably all, but they were clueless to what was going on and what was wrong. Outward religious participation, but hearts that were far from God. A form of religious spirituality, yet blinded as they live in their sin. Now, one thing, as I have been studying Micah, and maybe you're Maybe you're hearing this as we're walking through this. There is nothing new under the sun. There is no new kinds of sin in 2021. There's all kinds of warnings and exhortations that we should see, particularly when it comes to power, and that was really one of the things that Mike is going at the jugular for. When people prop up power in politics, celebrity ministers, wealth or influence over the standards of God, his word and his character. When we show partiality and we blindly overlook, say nothing is wrong here, or we justify things, the ends by the means. And God's people ignore that. This is sin. This is sin. And as God's people, we must be willing to see. And we see by the Spirit of God as 
Micah does and call out sins for as they are, even if it means it's in our own people or in our own camp. So this left Israel ripe for judgment. Look at verse 12 in chapter 3. So Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. And the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Judgment comes. The, the temple, the very place of God's presence to dwell among his people is taken away. It's now a picture of spiritual destruction. Overgrown with weeds. Now one thing we're going to notice with the prophets is that they are not, they're not some removed outside party just lobbing dark warnings at a group that's over there. They weren't like covert prophets up late at night writing blogs and just sending them to, to some group that was removed from them. No. No, they identified themselves among the people because they were part of the people. It is their people. Notice Micah's brokenness. If you look back at chapter one and verse eight, for this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches for her wound is incurable and has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Notice his response. He mourns. He weeps. He's doing extravagant things in display of what were cultural expressions of grieving over death and loss. It's so easy for us to just throw condemnation grenades at people denouncing their sins or to maybe spew on social media. It's much harder for us to get up under and lament and weep for sins, our own sins. Sins of the church at large or as a citizen of a country to be broken and weep for it. And Micah, Micah does. He sets an example for us. He says, judgment has reached my people. And yet, and yet, and yet by the Spirit, God spoke through Micah more than condemnation, more than, than judgment for their sins. Remember, each pronouncement is followed and matched with a message of hope and promise. Not always seen in the minor prophets, but we do get this glorious picture in Micah. Babylon or Israel's sin would not have the last word. See, the, the people were desperately in need of repentance and godly leadership. Not one hyped up on self-promotion or earthly glory and wealth, nor one, nor one who would use their power to step on others for more, more gain. And what the prophets show us is that among the failed kings and the prophets and the judges, God was to be Israel's king. God was to be their righteous leader and judge, and Yahweh would be the one to lead his people. Look at the end of chapter 2, where we find our first example of hope. Verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. 
a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord at their head. The Lord, as a king who is a shepherd, and we will see more of this in chapter 5, would be a ruler. And he would come, Micah says, from Bethlehem. And he will, verse 2 and verse 4 in chapter 5, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and he shall be their peace. He will lead and assemble his people, this, this remnant, because of one who will open a way. And he will open a passage out from captivity. So even among all the dismal leadership, building their kingdoms off the blood of others, celebrating injustice and preaching lies, their future hope rested on one who would be faithful to leave his people into freedom. And you see this word remnant many times through, through Micah and other prophets describing this, this portion, this, this portion remaining after destruction. Divine salvation will come to this small portion. And we even get a bigger picture of what this is going to look like in chapter 4. If you turn to chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, as God restores his people, it shall come to pass in the latter days that mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his ways. It is this glorious image of peace and provision and justice as the Lord reigns, and many nations assemble. Notice the difference. The pronouncements of judgment initially had to come with Micah saying, clue in and hear the word of the Lord, you hardened hearts. In this picture, everyone is hurried and rushing and wanting to gather up so that they may hear the word of the Lord. So the question is, how, how is this possible? How do we get here? Just judgment for Israel's rebellion was necessary. How do we get to this beautiful promise? Maybe a better question, why should God let Israel off the hook for all of their rebellion? Why? Well, if you recall Micah's name, Micaiah, meaning who is like the Lord? Well, we find a play on his name, a sort of a pun of sorts. We're introduced to Micah in verse 1, chapter 1. But if you have your Bibles, you could turn to the very end of the prophecy. Chapter 7, verse 18. We're introduced to an answer to that question. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. 
He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? Answer, he is the one who pardons iniquity, who passes over transgressions because of his covenantal faithfulness and steadfast love. The one who delights in steadfast love. Whose anger relents, whose compassion is poured out, who treads iniquity underfoot. Though Babylon will be experienced and exile will come, there is a remnant that will not be saved by Israel's covenantal faithfulness, but will be saved because of Yahweh's covenantal faithfulness. Those promises sworn to Abraham back in Genesis. A hope for a people deserving judgment is only found by putting faith in the promises of God and in his mercy and grace. And his mercy and grace is revealed in a Messiah, in a king, a savior who will defeat his enemies and will shepherd and lead his people into his kingdom of peace. And we know this is, we know this is Jesus. We know this is Jesus because he was the promised king born in Bethlehem. He was the one that identified himself as the good shepherd. He was also a prophet who came to speak God's word and identify himself among and as one of his people. He also cried out and lamented because of their sins. And as a ruler, he would be one who would not build his kingdom off the blood of the poor or the weak or strip them of their clothes and their possessions. No, he was the one. Church, he was the one that was stripped of his clothes and was naked for his people. He shed his blood on their behalf so that they may receive forgiveness and mercy. Peter, when he was preaching in Acts 3, said, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets and his Christ would suffer, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter's connecting the dots for us. You see, God had to punish the sin of his people to be just. He couldn't just overlook it. The guilt had to be paid for. But what Jesus does at the cross, at the cross, God judged the sins of his people, those who exchanged God's ways for the world and its lies, and all of those who today, even us, whose hearts are turned to greed and to pride and to lusts and to idolatry, just like Israel. He does not clear the guilty by no means, but he does make a way for all of those who repent and place their trust on Jesus who took that judgment upon himself 
where he then casts all our sin into the depth of the sea. Where he takes the judgment and treads out our sins, our iniquities underfoot. So church, on a, on a week where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of power going on, a lot of maybe unrighteousness that we're aware of, we have a certainty that we have a righteous king, church. That we have a righteousness of one who is leading us in peace. And our hearts need to be set upon him. So we can ask and we can look to the Lord to give us that peace. And we have a Lord who does not give up on his people. He is ready to forgive and deliver all of those who turn to him. There's a fountain of mercy and love waiting for you. Israel was not too far gone. Saint, you are not too far gone. Sinner who is not trusting in the Lord, you are not too far gone. Put your hope upon Jesus. And we ask, who is like you, O Lord, to mercifully, graciously save us through faith in your son, Jesus, who does not treat us as our sins deserve? What mercy, what grace, and what peace he leads us into. Aren't you, good, aren't you thankful for that good word today? Yes. Judgment did not have the last word. His steadfast love and mercy and kindness did. Let's pray that we would feel that again today. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you, 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 end, you end with a word, a better word than our con, the condemnation that we feel you end with a better word than the righteousness that's around us. Maybe even the oppressive things that we experience from those who are in power. Lord, we know that that will not have the final word. Lord, or even the sins that we've committed and we've contributed in the same way, Lord. We thank you that that does not have the final word. The final word is the word of Yahweh, who is like you, Lord, who pardons sin, who delights in steadfast love. Lord, would you let us experience and know that great and more powerful word, your steadfast love. And we know that it's not just a word, it is a person. It is Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our King, who is leading us to peace. So lead us into peace today. Peace in our forgiveness. Peace in knowing Whatever happens in our country and our nation, we have a Savior who is keeping and preserving his people and is leading us to you. Amen. Amen.